Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thank you for your company. It's easy to watch Alan Jones. Just go to the website, ADHTV. And tell your friends, of course, that's what you're doing now, isn't it? ADH.TV and tell your friends. And you can watch now. The Watch Now button is at the top and it's all there live and on demand and it's free. Tonight on the program, a favourite of ours, the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. This bloke understands the bush. I'll be asking him what you're all thinking. That is, are the nationals all hap and no cattle? How long can regional Australians remain second-class citizens? And there's a party dedicated to them who should be, in my opinion, delivering more. We still don't have dams. We still don't have coal mines. Where is the National Party? Well, Barnaby Joyce can make the case and you can be the judge. Remember, you can have your say. Just email me, Jones at adh.tv. Also, what about the news today that Labor is on track to win 80 seats? The special YouGov poll was based on a sample size of almost 19,000 voters. The verdict was that the coalition would be reduced to 63 seats. By the way, I don't agree with that, and I'll have more to say about that next week. But here's the showstopper. Seven independents would be elected. No, they won't be, but that's what the poll says. Take out Bob Catter, Rebecca Sharkey, Andrew Wilkie and Helen Haynes. But to think that Zali Stegall will be returned after achieving two-fifths of nothing in the national parliament, surely that's someone's idea of a funny joke. So if that is five independents, who on earth will be the other two? You can't tell me that the voters of Kuyong 
will tip out Josh Frydenberg and replace him with this Professor Monique Ryan, a so-called independent who just so happens to have joined the Labor Party in 2007, despite claiming she's a political clean skin. She now claims she quit Labor a few years after because she was disappointed with their lack of action on climate change. Is that the same Labor Party that introduced a carbon tax and a mining tax? Apparently not radical enough for Monique Ryan. Look, Australians are sick and tired of these fake independents. They are anything but independent. They all have secret political allegiances and are funded by the same puppet master, Climate 200. The Teals are a political party. To deny that is to insult the intelligence of Australians. My view, they're not worth a single vote. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, now, yesterday I spoke to Bella Dabrera, the director of the Foundation of Western Civilization Program at the Institute of Public Affairs. You may recall we talked about the latest version of the national curriculum in education, which was released on Monday. There is no evidence, I repeat, no evidence that this will in any way improve the educational outcomes of our children. It perpetuates what I've called for years now indoctrination, parading as education. It seems that government and sadly parents haven't woken up to the enormity of the education crisis facing us, with our young people being sent out into the real world, arguably infinitely worse prepared than children in comparable countries. Yet it's axiomatic, the nation's future is tied to the education of our young. Forget politics, the Labor Party announced on Monday a $140 million scheme which would lure high-achieving students into the teaching profession by offering up to $12,000 a year to study for an education degree and then work in regional parts of Australia. It's a good policy. Now, I don't know about regional Australia. Teachers with higher levels of personal scholarship are desperately needed everywhere. Counting university education, which is where teachers are trained, and including primary and secondary, get your head around this. The total government expenditure, your money on education, in 2019-20 was $114,000 million. Is this wasted? The number of students with an ATAR over 80 going into education degrees has collapsed to 3.3%. It was 30% in the early 1990s. And there are forecast teacher shortages of over 4,000 positions by 2025. Now the Labor Party said they'll pay 10,000 a year to 5,000 students with an ATAR over 80 to study an education degree. And if they commit to teaching in a regional area, they'll get $12,000. Now, previous high scholastic achievement by the teacher doesn't necessarily give them the talent to impart knowledge and install a passion for learning in their students, but it's certainly a hell of a start. We learned at the end of last year that up to 38% of secondary maths classes are taught by teachers who aren't trained in the subject. These teachers, if they're lucky, are a chapter ahead of the kids. That's what's called out-of-field teaching, that is, teachers who've not studied maths at the tertiary level. 
An analysis by the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute found last year more than 75% of students will be taught maths by an out-of-field teacher at least once between years 7 and 10. And as I said, up to 38% of secondary maths classes are taught by teachers who aren't trained in the subject. Also at the end of last year, we had the test results of the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, known as NAPLAN. The results showed that one in 10 girls and one in five boys had failed to reach the minimum standard for writing after nine years of education. 21.3% of boys and 10.7% of girls fell below the national standard, which means they couldn't punctuate sentences, spell simple words, or write a story in paragraphs. One in five teenage boys in high school is semi-literate. Glenn Fay from the Centre for Independent Studies made the staggering comment, and I quote, once you're in high school, there's very little direct instruction in literacy. Well, in the recent federal budget, there was not one mention of education. Yet the money continues to pour out and every education minister defends the system. But 20% of teenage boys are illiterate. The first ever Australian teacher workforce data report was released at the end of last year. Isn't that a problem in itself? The first ever Australian teacher workforce data report. It showed that nearly half the nation's maths and foreign language teachers are not qualified to teach the subject. In other words, your child is sitting in a classroom and the maths teacher or the French teacher may not be qualified to do the job. How do you spell betrayal? This is an educational mess which no one in government anywhere is prepared to admit. And it's not essentially the teacher's fault. They're thrown into an environment where they have no experience, no expertise and no choice. It's do this job or there is no job. The survey last year was nearly 18,000 teachers, one in seven, plan to quit in the next 10 years. A quarter of all teachers plan to quit teaching before retirement age. Men, who make up only 22% of the teaching workforce, and that's another problem, and young teachers are the likeliest to want to leave the profession. But here's the rub. 61% blamed mental health issues or stress for wanting to quit. The problem is discipline. The teacher has had all authority to discipline a child virtually taken away from them. The language and behaviour that many male and female teachers, especially female, have to endure is beyond disgraceful, such that I believe the police should be called in. Appalling, intimidatory, abusive and bullying language used mostly towards female teachers. And no education administrator can tell you what redress, redress is available to the teachers. But you have, by international standards, Australian educational outcomes miles behind comparable overseas countries. You have in this blackboard jungle that's education, between 36 and 46% of teachers teaching subjects in which they have no special skill. A quarter of maths teachers have no training in maths. 20% of science teachers have no training in science. And we're spending $140 billion on all of this. You can't have an education system without content and discipline. Discipline's gone, and of course, there is a total absence of content when teachers are not qualified to teach the subject. If this is not a rank betrayal of our children, what is, and when are we going to wake up? Now, each week, as I told you last week, we'll feature a segment which we're calling Question Time, not Question Time as it applies 
in the federal parliament, but rather in the British House of Commons, where in particular with Prime Minister's question time, the Prime Minister alone takes all the questions. Well, that's the fate tonight of our next guest. The Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the National Party, Barnaby Joyce, once described as Australia's best retail politician. Barnaby, good evening to you. Thank you for your time. Um, let me just You're raise this, this issue. You didn't lead the National Party to the last election where the coalition fell over the line and there were massive swings against the National Party. Uh, Calair, for example, a 17% swing to the shooters in Mali. The Nationals only got 27.9% of the vote. Damien Drum, who's now left the parliament, not standing, had a swing against him. And even Darren Chester in the safe seat of Gibson. Have you arrested all of that? Uh, well, I'm just going to make sure that we do our job. I'm trying to get round the, all the seats and make sure that we show the people that we're, um, that we're not in a marriage, we're in a business partnership and we're fighting hard for them and we're delivering the best outcome we can and the, the money we've got, the $21 billion that's on the table, which we're upgrading the port of Pilbara to make Australia stronger, quicker, um, upgrading the Alice Springs to Darwin Railway Line, Hellsgate Dam, Urano Dam, making sure we upgrade the roads. We're, we're doing the infrastructure as well, well as putting the health facilities such as um, such as Shepherd and Allied Health to Trobe. Now, people will make their own judgment, but I think I don't think anybody's saying that we've been asleep at the wheel. I think they, they yeah. acknowledge that this is a hell of a delivery. Yeah. It's worth reminding our viewers that when this bloke, Barnaby Joyce, was forced to a by-election in 2017 after resigning over dual citizenship and he virtually saved Turnbull's prime ministership, Barnaby Joyce won the staggering figure of 64.9% of the primary vote. Barnaby, a difficult one. People say the Nationals talk and don't deliver, and in particular in relation to harvesting water. Now, we've had rain, rain and rain. Yeah. It all goes into the ocean, and then we waste money desalinating it, bringing it back. Now, if we could provide reliable water west of the Great Dividing Range, we could feed Asia, couldn't we? Well, we certainly wouldn't... I don't think we'd feed all of Asia, Alan, but we'd give it a fair nudge in some of those areas. And you're outside there, you've got black soils and you've got sunlight and all you need is water. And we are building water infrastructure, Hellsgate Dam, 2.1 million megalitres. Sydney Harbour is 435,000 megalitres. So it gives you an idea of the size of it, more than four times the size of Sydney Harbour. But we need a state Labor, and they're controlled by the Greens government, to say the word yes. I mean, they ultimately are the authority. Just the other day, within a week, Alan, I opened Charleston Dam. That was near the town of Georgetown, near a small village called Forsyth. And that's a dam I started the approval back back into about 2014. I think I was the water minister. 2016, I got the money for it. Last week, I opened it. Yeah. And you know, these yeah. and I've got more to do. You ran a dam, Bowen Pipeline that'll open up 100,000 acres. Um, Dungowan Dam. Now I don't know what's happening there, but once more, state governments hold things up with their green yeah, regulations. They found a turtle. Unbelievable. They found a Unbelievable. turtle. Unbelievable. Can know? I just come back to you on this Hellsgate Dam? Because Scott Morrison went to Townsville in March to announce this 5.4 billion investment in the Hellsgate Dam. Bob Catter, as you would know, knows more about this than anyone else. He says the dam wall is too low. He says he's got a letter from you and you're responsible for dams, saying that the dam wall would be built to 395 metres, a height that would water Townsville, a height needed to get water onto the Western Plains, west of Huendon. He says that mm -hmm. undertaking was agreed to in writing. Was it? No, I don't think so. And the other thing there, Alan, is, is I know, look, 
we all love Bob, right? But it wouldn't have been approved. It's the, the in the end, I think there's a nine 9.1 million, uh, so the, yeah, 9.1 million um, megalitre outflow for the Burdekin. And with Burdekin Dam, Urana Dam, Hell's Gate Dam, and if we built Bob's Hell's Gate Dam, they just wouldn't approve it. And he says, too, I've been lied to. to. He said, Barnaby, I've been lied to. The <laughs> undertaking announced today doesn't go anywhere near that height. The Prime Minister said the smaller height had been, quote, worked up by detailed case studies by the Townsville Enterprise. Now, forget That's the rhetoric. Correct. Isn't this a breach of a promise, though? Or is Bob Catter not telling the truth? Well, I don't know where... Look, I don't believe that Bob had... Maybe he can table it. And if he does, and I see it and I made a mistake, I'll, I'll eat my words or I'll eat, eat the words on there. But, I, no, ultimately, the approved... We had to build a dam to the size that would be approved. And it, it's just there's no point announcing a dam that the Queensland government, the Environment Department, says, we're not going to let you do it. It's just we're not, it's not allowed. Who's and running the country? I know. Who's running... The, see, he says... Green bureaucrats. Yeah. I mean, who's running the country, these bureaucrats? He says that a dam height of 395 metres would provide, his words, all of North Queensland's electricity, clean, green, and with no carbon dioxide emissions. The entire base load, he said, would be carried from the Upper Burdigan Irrigation Scheme, which has always been what everyone has agreed to. So, I mean, at the end of the day... You're saying the bureaucracy have knocked this off? Yeah, great. The uh, water resource management plan, I think that's what they're called now, oh. in Brisbane would just not, never have allowed it. And so, they, so you'd be asking for something that they would just say, well, you, you can announce it, mate. We're just never going to allow you to build it. Well, we're just, now, we're still waiting for... Yeah. We're, still, we're still being held up by the green bureaucrats in Brisbane. They're, they're still not saying yes, even though they've got all the money. Unbelievable. They want to say yes. Unbelievable. This is what happens. And this... It is not what happens. The state government doesn't have to put a set in there. No, no. And who's running the country? that's what happens. It does. Yeah, so let me ask... When they change government, they should... Yeah, unbelievable. Look, let me ask... When they change governments, they should change departments. They should change the bureaucrats. They should sweep them out. Dead right. What did Donald Trump say? Drain the swamp. Just apropos, Scott Morrison, in the debates when Anthony Albany said a Labor government put Marines into Darwin, but the Morrison government gave a 99-year lease to a company associated with the Chinese Communist Party, the Prime Minister's persistent answer was it had nothing to do with his government. Now there's a story today that taxpayers forked almost $20 million out as an incentive for the Northern Territory to sell a lease to the port of Darwin to this company Landbridge with links to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, Scott Morrison was Treasurer. Now, surely signing off on $20 million is proof that he actively encouraged the deal, or does twenty million just go out the door and no one in government is accountable for it? Well, I've, I've had a look at that, and it's, it was an asset recycling uh, fund payment. Now, let's just remember the Labor Party received that payment. Okay, the Labor Party received that payment. So any moralising by the Labor Party is sort of peculiar when they put the money in their in their state in their territory's pocket. Um, so. What happened with the with that port, which should never have happened, right? No yeah. arguments should never have Definitely. happened. Definitely. The CLP um, at the time did not need the government because they were leasing the port, not selling the port. The, the port is still owned by the Australian people. It's the mm. management rights. 99-year lease. lease. I know it's a 99-year lease, and mm. I get it. It should never have happened. Mm. But then, then subsequently we went and changed the laws so it can't happen again. And, yes, yeah. it should never have happened. That was a bad idea, 
Um, I, I'm very uncomfortable with it. Good on you. And, Good uh, on you. And, and, the and bloke, what I love about said, you, oh, Barnabas, what I love about this bloke, he's so honest. See, he said, bad idea. He doesn't want to obfuscate. Bad idea. I'm not comfortable with it. Barnaby, last year, five of your colleagues drafted legislation allowing the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to invest in nuclear power. Now, at the time, many Liberals said the ban on nuclear power should be lifted. Do you agree with that? I think that we've, the Australian people are moving and moving in huge knots. Uh, every time I ask people, you know, do you support nuclear power, the vast majority of the room raise their hand. But we're also aware in an election that it's so easy for the Labor Party, as they've done before, to run around saying, oh, you're going to put a nuclear power plant in the, in the middle of, um, you know, the Pitt Street Mall and you're going to put one in the middle of Hyde Park and this is all rubbish. If there's ever... I, I believe that there's something that the Labor Party should be mature enough to actually, in a bipartisan way, say, let's have a look at this. Let's and work together yeah, to look at right. it. Dead We're right. the only OECD country that doesn't have nuclear power. The AWU, the Australian Workers' Union, support nuclear power. Now the CFMEU on the left side support nuclear power. So we're getting a very small group of people now who don't support it. Yeah. And I think it's incumbent upon the parliament into the future to bind together, to not make this controversial, to not try and score ridiculous points and to say, OK, let's Let's work well towards this. But we're, well as soon as one goes by yeah. themselves, the other side... I mean, we've got over 40% of the world's uranium reserves. We export the stuff so that other countries can have cheap and clean energy. I mean, it's beyond belief. It is beyond belief, isn't it? Barnaby, why yep. has there been no... Comp I mean, Tony Abbott won a comprehensive election victory attacking Labor's carbon tax. Now, here are 215 nominated country, uh, companies who are, if they exceed 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions, yeah. will have to buy carbon credits. Now, this is going to run into billions of dollars. It's a carbon tax. Where have the coalition been on this? Well, it's a... The ceiling where it is is like the top of this screen. Here we are, top of this screen, right? It's way above my head. It's not going to hit it. But what the Labor Party want to do is this, right? It's And sort of put the ceiling so it knocks out my eyes. And so 215 companies will get hit when the Labor Party, if the Labor Party gets into power, including your last two oil refineries. And coal, oil coal refineries mines. Coal mines. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, 15, 15 businesses in the Hunter Valley, Yeah, but only uh, one business in Sydney. And those carbon credits are $40, $40, sometimes $55. How the hell... Can you have net zero emissions with that kind of policy and people not sacrificing jobs? They will sacrifice jobs. If if this if this ceiling comes in at hundred at hundred thousand tons, it's going to cost. It might cost us the last two oil refineries because yeah. the oil refineries are going to say one of two things. They're going to say, okay, we're not paying the tax that we're putting on your fuel bill. You pay the tax, motorist. You pay the tax, Mrs. Jones. You go to the mm. counter and pay the tax the Labor Party brought in. Or they'll say, we're over this, we're off to Singapore as well. Buy That's right. Absolutely right. And I mean, you've, get, you've got companies, aluminium companies, cement companies, all of them in the same boat, exceed 100,000 tonnes carbon credits, 40 to 55 bucks. They say, well, hang on, Fertil it's cheaper. Fertiliser fertilize, hey? companies. And a new company we want to bring up. I've got $40 million. I'm putting a, a new, we're putting a new fertiliser plant into Gladstone down the road there. I'm up in Cairns at the moment campaigning. And you know, all these companies would also could come into their 
into this tax. Yeah. It, it's, yep. it's, you know, it's what, then, and then what, what about, we did. Uh, but Barnaby, just taking a step further, what about outfits like the ANZ Bank, who are now saying, well, you're going to have to meet these, you're going to have to meet these uh, uh, carbon dioxide emissions targets. The former governor of the Reserve Bank of England said, firms that align their business models to the transition to a net zero world will be rewarded handsomely. Those who fail to adapt, adapt will cease to exist. I mean, this is blackmail, Barnaby. Yes, it, yes, it is, Alan. And uh, the job is the Australian people, your viewers, have the right to say, you know, what is a legal business and what is an illegal business, not banks. The banks come out after... I had a yarn with one yesterday. I said, you get the offshore banking unit tax credit. That's a subsidy on a bank, right? So they get to pay the same tax rate for their overseas profits as overseas does rather than pay the Australian tax rate. It's about, uh, I know, it's about it's well in excess of $150 million a year. Look it up. Offshore banking unit tax credit, credit listeners. And we have, because we protect these banks, a four-pillar banking policy, which we say is, well, we'll only have four banks in here because we know your banks will do the right thing by Australia. Now, well, they now decide that they're not going to invest in our major assets. In Port of Newcastle. Assets, they won't lend to the Port of Newcastle because yeah. it's exporting coal. Who is going to stop this, Barnaby? Well, I, I, I was talking to a major bank yesterday and I said, well, well how, you tell me how I argue for a four-pillar banking policy when you're not investing in the Australia's capacity to earn export dollars. Good on you. How, I, how do I do that? You know, and, and not that I'm foreshadowing that's what's going to happen, but I'm saying to these people, be reasonable. You know, you've got to be reasonable. You're well protected in Australia. You're well looked after. But now if you start making the decisions that are rightly the decisions of government mm. um, and putting at risk our nation's capacity to earn export dollars yes. and therefore putting at risk the EIS, and, the social and, security, the pension, and, and school, Barnaby, everything. And Barnaby, the Labor Party are not going to put the carbon credit tax on banks that everybody got the lights on uh, in the cities, all of those people using electricity, exceeding more than 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions, they're immune. They're quarantined from all of that. No, that's right. See, you're, you're immune if it's from electricity. Yeah, so absolutely. Rather, rather cunning, because otherwise this carbon, this, this safeguard mechanism, this carb, this 100,000 tonnes, the banks would have to pay it. Absolutely. Barnaby, I could talk to you all night. And thank you for what you do. Thank you for being so honest, so outspoken. And thank you for what you do for the bush and above all else for the coalition. So good luck in the week that remains. I hope everything falls your way. Thank you, Alan. There thank you is. very much. Barnaby Joyce, isn't he impressive? Barnaby Joyce, leader of the National Party, Deputy Prime Minister. I mentioned earlier this week the critical issue of aged care. The Royal Commission two years ago into aged care found there had been failures in clinical care and infection control, which failures have resulted in hundreds of deaths. And I made the point that families are defenceless in all of this. They pay handsomely for a place in an aged care facility. And as I said this week, for many, all they have bought is death for their loved ones. A report on staffing commissioned by the Aged Care Royal Commission found 57.6% of residents are in homes with staffing that would rate only one or two stars and that existing restrictions in relation to aged care had, quote, tragic, irreparable and lasting effects which must be immediately addressed, unquote. I also mentioned, and it must be repeated, that the entry-level pay for an aged care worker is $21.09 an hour, lower than for a supermarket shelf stacker. Now, this is at one end of the age spectrum, care for the aged. 
I repeat the disturbing statistic that while many people would prefer to stay in their home because of the attraction to them of a home care package, the Royal Commission found that more than 44 seniors a day, over 16,000 a year, died waiting for their home care package. Along with cost of living and what I alluded to earlier about energy policy, care has become a dominant word in this election campaign, which takes me to the other end of the age spectrum, childcare. This sector is full of conundrums. In the March budget, the coalition government increased support for families with two or more children in childcare. But even then, the cost today is often beyond what families can afford. For example, the rise in inflation since March last year was 8.6%. But the cost of childcare in the same 12 months since March last year is up 14.8%. Government and opposition persist in saying that they'll pay down the debt and pay for increased structural costs like the NDIS and aged care, and they'll pay for that via productivity. Well, childcare becomes a significant economic issue in terms of productivity. You see, if the cost of childcare becomes exorbitant, as I've said many times, one of the parents may well consider whether working is worthwhile. Or if parents decide that there's a day of childcare that they can't afford and they pull their child out of childcare, that may well push a childcare worker out of work. In both instances, productivity is reduced. So early childcare education is now a source of great financial pain under this umbrella of cost of living. If the childcare industry has seen limited wage growth and now for parents there's significant cost of living pressure, the mortgage cost has gone up, families have to grapple with a 15% increase in the cost of childcare, so something's got to give. The focus in this election on our care systems, like aged care and childcare, is a good thing. But I doubt whether the policies and the solutions being proposed are sufficient to meet the challenges confronting the care sector. Recent reports suggest that the coronavirus crisis has left our care systems, and I quote, seriously damaged and in desperate need of renovation. Unquote, that there are, quote, serious workforce sustainability problems, unquote, in the aged care, disability and childcare sectors. Low wages and insecure working conditions are being blamed for the crisis. Whoever forms government will be asked to invest in, quote, sustainable and decent care jobs. But take one look at the NDIS. Its mission is to care for the disabled. The original price of the scheme was about $22 billion a year. The latest federal budget puts the cost at $35.7 billion, but recent forecasts say that could reach $60 billion by 2030. How do we pay for all of this? And that's why the debt burden borders on the irresponsible. We need economic growth, but we need responsible economic management so that the children, the disabled and the elderly of the future can have the care and treatment they deserve in a civilised society. The current economic maths suggest this goal may be unattainable. If so, what comes next? Well, in all three leader debates, and especially with these so-called teal independents, much is being made of integrity. Labor, of course, want a federal integrity commission, and the Prime Minister has set his face against it. The Prime Minister is right. Reputations have been destroyed in New South Wales via ICAC. But if integrity is an issue at this election, surely the first trashing of integrity 
lies with these so-called independents, who won't indicate to whom they would give support if there was a hung parliament. Now, this election is about deciding who should govern Australia, and they won't tell us who they will support to form government. Integrity, nil. Professor David Flint is an Australian legal academic of remarkable distinction, and he joins me on this issue of integrity and other matters. Professor Flint, thanks for your time. You've studied the operations of New South Wales ICAC. Should that be a model for a National Integrity Commission? Certainly not. It breaches the fundamental rule that nobody should be found guilty unless this has proven beyond reasonable doubt before a judge and a jury. And here you have questions being asked in public without the rules of evidence applying and people being treated as if they were guilty of an offence when they're not. Mm. And the resources of the commission being used, for example, against completely innocent people in relation to something hardly related to corruption. And I look at it in particular, the case of Margaret Kinneen, a silk who was uh, the subject of a, an assault by ICAC, a, a, really a persecution by ICAC, which she had to take to the High Court to protect herself. Yes, indeed. And then, of course, the New South Wales government passed retrospective legislation to validate all decisions prior to that case, to validate them, independently of the merit of them, validate them. What the public don't know here, David Flint, is that no conclusion by ICAC and no evidence presented at ICAC is admissible in a court of law. Exactly. And this means that even if they're onto something important, as they often are, and this is no criticism of them in this regard, but this means that then the matter then has to go to the DPP. The DPP has to conduct a separate investigation to accumulate all of the evidence. So you get this very lengthy delay, unnecessary delay, which is obviated, for example, in the United States where they have a special counsel and it goes before a grand jury and the grand jury decides whether the whole case should go before a judge and a jury. You need something much more expedited. It's a very poor model, and I'm surprised that anybody would suggest the ICAC model as the appropriate model. And this is no criticism of them. No. I mean, there are authenticated reports, which I think the public don't understand, that 128 people have been defamed or destroyed by New South Wales ICAC Yet the Prime Minister, for his trouble, has been indirectly called a buffoon by one of the three ICAC commissioners rushed in SC. Well, I find that a very, very persuasive form of argument to call somebody a buffoon. But the, the point is, you redesign the model. Mm. And there are plenty of models. Well, uh, David Flint, just tell us, you just alluded to that, about the American experience, basically, of the, uh, where it's a special counsel and a grand jury and no public hearings. The wonderful thing is that the Americans at the time of independence preserved an institution which they inherited from the British. And it's a wonderful institution because it uses the common sense of the ordinary person. And you do need ordinary people's common sense rather than leaving everything to a class of elite lawyers. And what happens with the grand jury is that the special counsel does his investigations prepares them, brings the evidence before the grand jury, and eventually the grand jury decides whether there is a case, like a magistrate does here. The grand jury decides, well, we've heard the evidence, we've listened to the witnesses and so on. We've decided that this case should go before a judge and a jury. Yeah. And it's relatively Or vast. alternatively, there is insufficient evidence, yes. so there's no case. Yes. 
So the person who has been the subject of the investigation, mm. normally unless there's been some leak, but even then that's not as bad as no. these public parades that we have in Sydney, and the, the questioning which is not limited by the laws of evidence, all that sort of thing is not possible in the United States. No. So you're protected yes. if you're innocent. Quite. Integrity, let's go to the electoral system. Does it safeguard integrity? I mean, it is law that you have to have a special reason to pre-poll. But I understand that almost a million Australians have already voted. What safeguards exist against multiple voting? There are no safeguards, really, against multiple voting. We are the most backward of countries in the OECD in relation to the protection of the integrity of the electoral system. Most countries have done this through requiring photographic ID, and this is the reasonable thing which everybody thinks is the yeah. way to ensure yeah. that when a person goes in to vote, that person is David Flint and not somebody else. Quite. And the other thing which is absolutely necessary and which, which uh, wasn't insured, and, and although the technology is there, I can vote up to about 40 times Quite. in my electorate. Quite. And there's no link between the various polling no. stations. Whereas if you vote once, your name should go up the roll at every polling station. Yes, all over the world. At, in all London, over the world, everywhere. Quite. Yes, okay. it, should, it should just disappear. What about the integrity of the processes put in place during coronavirus? Well, the, the, what we had there were processes which were excessive. We, had the, we borrowed from the Communist Chinese the lockdown turning down, closing all sorts of mainly small businesses all over the country, which were, which were completely unnecessary yeah. because you didn't need that sort of draconian measures. But, but there was no scrutiny of these decisions. Parliaments didn't sit. I mean... Oh, exactly. Uh, normally, that sort of regulatory making power used to, at least in colonial times, it used to go before the Executive Council and then it would be referred, after it was made, after the regulation was made, it would be referred to both Houses of Parliament. Yeah. And it would be open to either Quite. House to disallow, to disallow the regulation. Yep. That disappeared completely. Nothing. They've, they've removed a lot of mm. these from the supervisory role yeah. of the two Houses. And quite often, in some states, the two houses weren't sitting because of the virus, although they could have sat by Zoom and so yeah. on. But then people arrested for sitting on a park bench. I mean, a woman actually protesting in her own house, sending a text message, a pregnant woman, she's arrested for daring to question some of the decisions by the Andrews government. Just moving on from there about integrity. The government, for example, Labor government, banned the live cattle trade. Integrity? Who was answerable? The Labor government decision was found at law to be invalid, so the taxpayer forked out compensation. Yes, and it took about 10 years for yeah. that case to come up before the judge. And uh, as you quite rightly say, the judge is uh, work working out the damages, which will be substantial. It won't be the minister who will pay anything. No. There should be a criminal offence of serious misfeasance in public office. Absolutely. So that uh, there is some, there's some liability on the part. Quite. of ministers who abuse their powers. They arbitrarily exercise power and damage individuals' lives and well-being. Now, your particular concern, the determination with Labor to turn Australia into a republic under the system of a constitutional monarchy, a prime minister like Gough Whitlam, was prevented from breaching the constitution. Now, if integrity is to be preserved, shouldn't the matter of a republic be determined by referendum? 
It certainly should be determined by referendum. There are people who propose it being done through the back door. One Labor MP, presumably with some of the support in his party, proposes that the law of succession be changed so that the Queen be succeeded by King Rudd or King Turnbull or somebody yeah. like that, which is a ridiculous success, su suggestion. But the other thing that the Labour Party is going to do is to have a minister for the Republic. Once Mr Albanese gets in, one of his minister's roles will be to be undermining the Constitution, which is an extraordinary proposition, given that the Constitution says that the government is there to maintain and execute the Constitution and the laws of the Commonwealth. How can you maintain the Constitution if you have a whole government department with all the money a government department has, all of those various people that they employ, consultants and so on, to campaign against an institution within the Constitution which they want to get rid of. And the model which is being proposed is a model whereby the president would be stripped yes. of the reserve powers. Those I are mean, the powers that, that uh, Sir John Kerr used against Gough Whitlam. But Professor Flint, we've got an election on. Isn't it disturbing that none of these very, very serious issues are even being debated or discussed? This is extraordinary. Only the superficial issues seem to be being discussed mm. and not the really fundamental mm. issues of where Absolutely. this country is going where the defence of this country is going, and the very important questions of the development of the country through the harvesting of water, and the standards of education. Oh, Our no. education system Absolutely. is collapsing. Mm. We had that Gonski proposal yes. for years where you, whereby you put more money into education. Mm. The result was more federal money yeah. meant lower standards. I've talked about that till I'm blue in the face. Listen, before you go, before we run out of time, you have said that Donald Trump is the finest of American presidents since Ronald Reagan. Amplify that for us. Well, if you examine the man, on, not on what he said, not on what others said, if you examine him on what he achieved, he drew lines in the sand in relation to the hostile powers of the United States, and they knew not to cross them. Putin knew not to cross them. Xi knew not to cross them. The, uh, the mullahs in Tehran knew not to cross them. And there would have been no problem in Ukraine, Ukraine no. had he been in power. Absolutely. And he started a whole network of peace treaties in the Middle East. He was a very strong president. He built up the, the armed forces of the United States in a way which had been allowed to deteriorate under previous administrations. Made them energy independent. Yes, he made them energy independent. He brought back industry. He, he stopped the Chinese communists from stealing Mm. intellectual property. He really had them uh, understanding that there were limits beyond which and they could not And employment go. growth in every ethnic group. Yes. And he, he stands out with Reagan as a great peacetime leader, as a wonderful leader of the free world. Wonderful. We don't have a great leader of the no. free world now. From Afghanistan, we know that we have no leader mm. of the free world at the moment. Well, this is so important to us. Absolutely. That's the crisis in Western political leadership that I talk about. Wonderful to talk to you, David Flint. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights, and thank you for the intellectual contribution you make on so many fronts. It's always good to talk to you. There he is, Professor David Flint.
Well, here we are in the world of sport. Let's go to Cam, Cameron Williams. Cameron, where do you want to start? The Magic Round, the NRL Magic Round in Brisbane. Yes, good evening, Ella. That's a great place to start. Very popular concept. All 16 teams converge on Brisbane in a three-day festival of rugby league. And, uh, of course, every match played at Suncorp Stadium. It's a great idea, but I'm not sure it'll be a magical experience for Bulldogs coach Trent, ba Trent Barrett. Mm. If he actually loses to these struggling Knights tomorrow night, his record will fall, Alan, to five wins from 35 games. You know, that's a 14% strike rate. Very good if you're a horse trainer. Quite terrible if you're a football coach. But let me ask you a question. Can a first-grade coach survive if he is not the most respected coach in the organisation? He's got Phil Gould looming over him every day. Well, look, I, look the thing I, that gets me about... Uh, Trent is that A, he's a good bloke, a brilliant footballer, and I'm sure he must be able to coach, but it's the defensive setup that gets me. I don't know who's in charge of defence at Canterbury, but they just leak tries. Now, I know the best form of defence is attack, but you've certainly got to be able to stop the other mob from scoring, and that seems to be a fundamental weakness. Well, it is, and of course, uh, he, they were galvanised a couple of weeks ago against the Roosters. Phil Gould swept in like a mariachi band and the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Now get on to something else. Uh, Postacoglu. I mean, he could always coach Postacoglu, and every, whenever he went, whenever, wherever he went, he won. But this is a big triumph in Scotland, isn't it? Well, to win the English, uh, sorry, the Scottish Premier League in your debut season as a European coach—that's incredible. Mm. Uh, you know, the only thing that matters to the Scots is Celtic versus Rangers. Yeah. Now, last year. Of course, Rangers won. It was their turn. But they beat Celtic by 25 points, which is a, an astounding gap. He's turned all that around, just as he did at Brisbane, yes. as he did for yep. the Socceroos, yep. as he did in the J-League. Couldn't speak mm. a word of Japanese. Mm. Took a team from the bottom to the top in just mm. a matter of moments. He is a phenomenon, and I reckon that after he's had a crack at the Champions League with Celtic next year, he may well want to go to the English Premier League, oh, yes. and he could write his own check, yep. Alan. He'd be worth a few miles. All right, all right. Let, let me take your, your uh, memory back to 2003. Do you remember this? It was like I'm a, going to close my eyes. It was like a stab in the heart. I don't want to see it. I'm closing my eyes. <laughs> Five seconds to go. This is the one. It's coming back for Johnny Wilkinson. He drops for World Cup glory. Yes! It's up. It's over. He's done it. Johnny Wilkinson is England's hero yet again. Nice and there's no yep, time. Fantastic fellow. He owned that tournament. And, of course, Australia had the benefit of... Uh, well, first of all, a financial win for $40 million mm. for, for hosting that tournament. And, of course, it caused a euphoric reaction around Australia. It was very good for rugby union temporarily. Things have mm. trailed off. But now we expect tonight in Dublin to have Australia anointed as the 2027 and 2029 World yeah, Cup men's hosts. men's and women's. Yeah. Men's and women's. Mm. And that will mean an awful lot to the code. We hope so. We hope so. Well, well, now, come so, on. So, when you're talking about an awful lot, come on. This is the story to end all stories. It is? Go on. Brady. Oh, Tom Brady. What do you reckon seven championship rings at the Super Bowl are worth? No idea. No idea. Fox Sports America had a crack at valuing it. They're going to pay him $540 million for a 10-year contract to commentate. It's more money than he made oh. during his very, very illustrious playing well, career. So yeah, well, I don't think you'll be camping out, Alan. You don't need to worry no. about it. No. Well, I have to say, I also don't have the uh, Andy Warhol, Marilyn Monroe print, which went this week. $195 million, was it? $195 million. Yeah. We're talking big, big money. I thought I, it was only a passing likeness. Yes. I'll just tell you a funny story here before we go. Yeah. Uh, they're called the shot pictures, the shot Marilyns, because Andy Warhol had these pictures of, of Marilyn Monroe and he had a mate who was an artist who came in and the artist said to him, it was Andy Warhol's mate, he said, can I take a shot? And he said, sure, of course. And he thought he meant to take a picture of them. The bloke pulled out a pistol and went bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> and knocked a hole in Marilyn's head. Now the pictures were all repaired and these are the ones that are selling. They're called the shot Marilyn. So there's a story. Then he moved on to Coke bottles. So <laughs> quite amazing. All right, Cam. Good to talk to you. There <laughs> he is. Well. Wonderful. Cam Williams. Now, before we go, there have been huge protests in Sri Lanka demanding the resignation of the Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa. He finally resigned two days ago and he's now been moved to a naval base for his safety. Now, I've spoken about these thugs before, the Rajapaksas. This family are a political dynasty in Sri Lanka. Quite frankly, Sri Lankans need to boot this mob out. In 2020, they won an overwhelming majority in Sri Lanka's elections. So Gotabaya Rajapaksa became the president of Sri Lanka. He then appointed his brother, Mahinda, to be the prime minister. And then came the cabinet appointments. 
This Mahinda made himself the finance minister, the urban development minister, and the Buddhist affairs minister. His son was appointed youth and sports minister. Mahinda's lawyer, the justice minister. President Gotabaya, defence minister. The eldest brother, Shamal, the irrigation minister. The nephew, the state agriculture minister. You get the picture? It's an eye-watering amount of power, and dare I say, a green light for corruption. There wouldn't be a federal ICAC big enough for this mob, but it's not the first time for the Rajapaksas. They initially ruled Sri Lanka from 2005 to 2015. During the five years hiatus, 2015 to 2020, the constitution was changed to ensure presidential powers were trimmed, such as limiting presidential terms to two and creating independent oversight bodies. Well, the Rajapaksas objected to these democratic changes and launched a relentless political comeback. Their changes have meant creating an executive presidency that granted Gotabaya control over the appointment of ministers, judges, and the heads of various nominally independent commissions. Well, now the public are awake up to this lot. Sri Lankans blame the Rajapaksa dynasty for a meltdown in the country that has reduced reserves to just about US $50 million, stalling imports and causing massive shortages of food, fuel and medicine. Last month, Sri Lanka admitted it could no longer service its foreign debt. The country is broke. The discontent has unleashed widespread protests which killed nine people. Shops and businesses have been shut by curfew. The army have been deployed to keep the peace and troops have been ordered to shoot at anyone damaging public property or threatening lives. There are soldiers in armoured vehicles patrolling the streets of Colombo, the country's commercial capital. The Rajapaksas and the country are now out of options. The government will have to slash spending and raise taxes, further eroding Sri Lankans' standard of living, even as inflation bites. It is a mess. But what do they say? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thanks for joining us at ADH.TV, where it's free to watch Alan Jones at 8 o'clock Monday to Thursday. I'll see you Monday night. Good night.